Um, I was sitting there thinking today, you know, I grew up, we had kind of old school conversations about the acts of worship. There were like five acts of worship. You know, there's obviously actually six because they left off announcements, just so you know. But seriously, I was thinking about that. One of the things I love about this church, isn't it beautiful that we have a day where we celebrate the investment of the Spirit of God in this place, in our children, at the same time we make a commitment to children we don't even know. That's not about us. It's not about you. It's about the resurrected Christ who is at work in you, and I thank God for all of you. I appreciate that. We are leading up to that celebration of Jesus' resurrection with this little mini-series we called Unfinished Business because we're asking the question to God, what do we do in a world where we look around, and again, of all weeks, this week's another reminder, like the headlines keep doing the introduction of this, right, that we look around and we, we feel the pain and the brokenness and the unfinished nature of this world. We hear these cosmic promises that God's going to fix and renew all things, and yet we look around and we don't feel that or see it. What do we do in a world like that? And last week we saw this beautiful picture of God speaking to a prophet named Ezekiel and and the, the vision of God putting dry, dead bones back to life again. And this week we're going to go to A passage that's, again, I I love this in this time of the year. I think about this. This passage that I'm about to read is being read all around the world on this day. A bunch of different languages, a bunch of different places. Because as you will hear, the language is speaking of the week we're about to head into. I know we celebrate the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus every week. But this week is special. I celebrate the life of my kids every day. But you better believe I pay special attention on the day of the anniversary of their birth, right? Well, this is the week 2,000 years ago where Jesus was going in to the last week of his earthly life and to give his life for us. So we're going to pay attention to that in this passage. If you have your Bibles or your devices, we're going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 50. This is another place, it's a different historical setting, but the same kind of idea as last week where the people of God have rebelled for so consistently and so long that God says, I'm going to send you into what I call the extended time out. (laughs) I'm going to send you into exile, not giving up on you, I'm disciplining you. And this is a passage that is speaking in the section of Isaiah about the hope of God after that time will come, and it's predicting it. This is the third of three songs about the servant of God that Isaiah gives us Uh, earlier this year in, in Christmas. We preached on a different one. So this, Isaiah 50, verse 4, is the word of the Lord. Juggle the Bible in this. The Lord God has given me the tongue of a teacher, the servant says, that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. Morning by morning he wakens, wakens my ear to listen as those who are being taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I did not turn backward. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. The Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who are my adversaries? Let them confront me. It is the Lord God who helps me, who will declare me guilty. All of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant, who walks in darkness and has no light, yet trusts 
in the name of the Lord and relies upon his God. But watch out, you who live by your own light and warm yourselves by your own fires. This is the reward you will receive. You will soon fall down in great torment. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want you to just think for a moment about a great coach that you might have had in your life, or maybe maybe a great teacher or a guide in some way or an instructor in something that you wanted to learn or grow into. I, I love paying attention to great coaches. For me, I, I, I've coached football some. I enjoy that. Uh, and I love watching great coaches. So over the last two years, I've been particularly inspired by someone that maybe you know because he started here. His name is Dan Campbell. Dan started as a tight end here at, uh, at A&M, but he went on to play for the Dallas Cowboys, moment of silence. And, uh, and now he coaches for the Detroit Lions, and I never pay attention to the Lions. The Lions are awful. They've been awful for a long time, but the last two years, man, he has turned that organization around. And last year, they did the show every year that they'll, they'll come and follow a team during training camp, and it's called Hard Knocks, and they did Hard Knocks for the Lions. And I really enjoy watching this because I, I love great leaders and love great coaches, and, and Dan Campbell comes out as someone who genuinely loves his players and is a powerful leader of men. One of my favorite images from the story, they had played their first playoff game. And they, by all accounts, really played better than the other team, beat the other team in every way except for on the scoreboard because at the end of the game there were two or three things that happened, just small things that changed the course of the game. And he came in to talk about the new culture that he was trying to instill in this place. And he brought this folded up pair of jeans. <laughs> And he talked about the little things. The little things define things in life. And he said, what I want to do, and he shuck out the jeans, and it had all this like dust in it. He said, we're going to shake out the dust of our past and missing those little things and those details, and that will change everything. And little by little, they did that. I love the way that he inspired other coaches to be teachers. And there was one moment where the offensive line coach was talking to a raw recruit. I mean, he had all the physical skills, but the, he had on film a moment where the guy was just quitting like halfway through a drill that he was doing. He calls him up in that moment. And he says, look, you're cheating on this drill. And he asked the question, maybe you know the answer to this. He said, who are you cheating in this moment? And the lineman said, well, you know, I'm cheating my team. No, who are you cheating? Who was he cheating? You're cheating yourself. Because he said, we're not just trying to make you a player here. We're trying to make you a great man. And you grow into this, and you see this guy over the course of the season. He gets released, and they picked him back up again. He grows a lot by the end of the story. And I love a picture of someone who coaches not just for performance, but for people to live lives that they've always wanted to live. And I come to this passage, and I think this is exactly what God is doing for us as we lead into the celebration of Jesus' death and his burial and resurrection. He said, let me tell you the story. And really sing you the song of a great coach. I want to I put on the, the images of a great coach who isn't just interested in your religious performance. He is interested in your life. So we're asking God, what, what does it look like for the great coach to come into the messiness and the brokenness and the unfinished business of this world and lead us to transform lives? 
Well, the first thing you notice, we didn't read these verses, so we'll pick them up and, and read them here for a moment. But the first thing that you notice is God makes it clear that there are these pivotal moments in our lives. And what makes them transformative, these pivotal moments, is when we have the opportunity to see ourselves accurately as we really are. Uh, we, we all remember these times, maybe when you were a kid and you got to see yourself on a video for the first time. Doing something, you'd practice something, you performed it. Maybe, maybe it's your first recital and you've been taking piano lessons and you play and you're like, ooh, wow, <laughs> right? Or maybe we got our LTC folks that are training and working. Maybe it's the first time you ever spoke and you wrote something, you wrote a poem, you wrote a speech, you did something and you had to get up and do it and maybe you saw an image of that and it gave you an opportunity to see where you are and where you wanted to go. Again, a lot of us, Grew up playing sports or then going on to coach sports. And there's a very important thing in the business of players and coaches in the world that I've worked in. And it's called game film. <laughs> and then there's a saying among coaches. And they will say this all the time to players. Here's the thing. Game film, game film doesn't lie. <laughs> you say, coach, I did it right. I knew how to do it. No, hold on. Film doesn't lie. And you get to see a picture of this. And that's how they trained. And I remember one of my first experiences with game film. I was a freshman. I was 5'7", maybe 5'8". I'm pretty sure I was about 5'7 at the time. I was a defensive back. That meant as a cornerback, I covered their receivers, you know, helping the run a little bit, mostly out on the edge covering receivers. And, and we played our first preseason game was against T.C. Williams. If you've ever seen Remember the Titans, we were playing them. In fact, in the, in the movie, our high school was the first team that got beat by them. <laughs> and that's the way they did it all the time. Now, that was before my time, but it still happened. And I remember I was standing out on the edge, and I lined up, and in front of me was the receiver. Remember, I'm 5'7", maybe 5'8". The guy in front of me, 6'2", 6'3", receiver. Strong, fast. I'm like, oh, my goodness. And, and our coach, our defensive coach, called, anybody who knows football, called bump and run coverage. <laughs> and what that meant is I wasn't back in his zone waiting for him and looking at the ball. I had to get right up in his face, and I had to try to hit him and slow him down going out on his route. Now, my coach had told me a hundred times when you deal with somebody especially bigger than you, it's all about leverage, so you get low. And I wasn't thinking any of that. I was staring at this dude. <laughs> and he came off the line. I'm telling you, he lit me up and laid me flat. And I was terrified all weekend. By the way, he didn't, they didn't throw to him or anything, so nothing happened on that. But I was terrified all weekend. Can anybody guess what I was scared of on Monday? Game film. <laughs> And it wasn't my coaches. I was just waiting for the moment where they saw me lay flat and I knew I would never hear the end of it. To this day, I call it the grace of God because this doesn't happen with film. The play was on the other side or whatever. And some reason, you see a step for a second and then we're off the screen. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> but I'm telling you, there is something that is a gift, even in those moments of failure, to see the point of the film is to say, this is where you are, but we don't want to leave you there. We're going to help train you and help you grow. And what happens in this passage before we get to the central part that we'll focus on is God starts by playing the game film of the human race and the people of Israel. And he's saying, look, I want you to see your failure. I want you to see how you got knocked flat, not to beat you up, but to get you out of that. So look at these verses we didn't read in verse 1. He uses a metaphor here, and it's important for us to see. God uses the image of, of, of Israel as his bride, and then the children of Israel. She, the, Israel is like the mother of the children of Israel. So both the mother and the children are both Israel in the story. So if you follow this, this is what he says. 
verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Was your mother sent away because I divorced her? So they're feeling this distance from God. Did I divorce her? Did I cut her off? Did I sell you children as slaves to my creditors? Listen to this. No. You were sold because of your sins. And your mother, too, was taken because of her sins. Why was there no one there when I came and no one answered when I called? Is it because I have no power to rescue? No, that's not the reason. And then he uses imagery that we remember from the book of Exodus. I can speak to the sea and make it dry up. I can turn rivers into deserts covered with dying fish. Ninth plague, I can dress the skies in darkness, covering them with clothes of mourning. God says, I can do this. Hear me, this is so important for us to recognize. God makes it very clear from the beginning. Look, the mess we find ourselves in when we lay flat, listen, the problem isn't with God, the problem is with us. Now hear me, this is kind of liberating to me because I grew up with this picture of God as this cosmic cop that's waiting for us to screw up and then he's going to grab us and throw us in the pit of hell. Listen to me, the distance we feel from God is not God's problem, it's ours. We grew up telling this story like God can't be around sin. Well, nobody told Jesus that. The problem with sin is not God, it's us. So this is the way he says it here. He says it just a few chapters later in Isaiah 59 this way. He says, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have separated you from him so that he will not hear. The problem is not with God. Our distance comes from us. For Colossians 1.27 says it this way. Paul says, you were alienated. Before you were in Christ, you were alienated from God. Listen to this. Because you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Or perhaps we take it all the way back to the beginning. Why is it that we're laying flat on the ground? It isn't that God can't stand you and he's running away from you. We run from him. What happens in Genesis 3? God creates the world in perfection and harmony. And it says God is walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, looking for his people. But when they had sinned, do you remember what they did? What's the first thing that Adam and Eve did after they sinned? What, what was it? Somebody remember? They hide from him because they are afraid. God is looking for them. They run away. Hear me. The problem isn't with God. He doesn't hate you. He's not repulsed by you. He's looking. He's crying and nobody's there. He said, you're the one that have run because of your rebellion and your sin. Here's the picture. This week is a great opportunity for us to come in and to, to look in the mirror, to watch the game film and say, it's on us. We own it. And to say three words, I think this week is a great opportunity to say, maybe for the first time, or to say again, three words. I need help. The cross of Jesus is about, it's about declaring our dependence on him. We can't do it alone. We need help for the most important things in life. This week is a declaration of that. I remember, I think it was my second year of law school, and I had the opportunity to get a journal article published in, in the UVA's uh, uh, tax review, which is kind of funny because tax was my worst class, but it doesn't matter. I was on that editorial board, so that probably helped me get a note in there. And I'm saying this, and you might think, oh, Dean's bragging about getting something published. I'm not bragging. I'm ashamed of it. I'm ashamed of it because I put that together quickly. It was sloppy work, and not just now, but when it was written, the law was wrong in a couple of places. Anybody who knows me knows that bugs me now. It's published, and it's out there. But here's how that happened. Because deep in my heart, I wasn't able to say those three words, I need help. 
So when I finished the work and I was ready to turn it in, we, we got assigned someone else on the board as an editor, and there were two possibilities. One was Rich, and the other was my friend Layla, who was um, my moot court partner. We were friends and buddies, and she was kind and sweet and wasn't going to push anything. Rich annoyed me. <laughs> Rich was annoying, and he was brilliant, and he was, in my mind, prideful. I say that now. Usually I wouldn't say the real name of that person because now I recognize the pride and the arrogance wasn't on Rich's part. Guess who it was? It was me. And I remember hearing him in class, and he was brilliant, and he was an absolute stickler for detail. And I knew if he was the one editing it, he would paint my whole article red, and I have to rewrite it and work on it a thousand different times. So I came to Layla, and I said, you know what? I don't want a Rich to kind of go all of this stuff. I trust you. I, what I really meant is I trust you not to do anything with it. <laughs> and here's this thing. Today, I regret that because I am sure that if I had submitted that to Rich, he would have caught the places that are wrong, and I wouldn't be embarrassed to have my name on that article. Do you hear me saying? That's just a stupid article. But what about our lives? Are we willing to say, Jesus, I come to you in confidence because I know you're not going to break me. You're here watching the film so that you can help me and train me, but I just need to admit to you, I need help. Transformative, pivotal moments in our lives happen when we let ourselves see ourselves as we really are accurately. And then the heart of this passage, as you know, is this song, these verses 4 through 9. And it's a moment to recognize the real transformation happens. How? When you marvel at the Master. You just marvel at the Master. Right before we moved here, we have dear friends that gave us some concert tickets before we moved to see this guy. Anybody know who this is? Come on. Who is this? Eric Clapton, old slow hand, they call him. One of the greatest blues guitarists ever, right? Steve, you got my back on this, right? One of the best things they did is when they showed it. You know, I've been to concerts there at Bridgestone Arena where the Preds play and all that stuff, and they're dazzling light shows and smoke and mirrors and all that. They didn't do a lot of that. Most of the time, the videographer just did this, and they did close-ups of his hands. So even at 80 years old or whatever he is, he still nails it. He still plays it, and it comes out of him from his being. I remember, again, I'm old, so put up with me for a moment, but I love when I was a kid. I loved hard rock, and I loved this guy named Eddie Van Halen. He's an amazing guitarist. And I heard, how did Van Halen learn how to play? You know, he couldn't read music. You know what he did? He took all of Clapton's old music, and he learned it note by note by note. He marveled at the master. Here's what's amazing. That guy became a master, one of the greatest rock guitarists ever, because he marveled at that master. And God says, here's how I want to help you get through this broken, unfinished world. He said, I'm not just going to tell you the words. I'm going to sing you a song inspired by Isaiah, by the Holy Spirit and let Isaiah sing the song of my servant. I'm going to tell you what the master looks like when he's following me. In the first couple of verses, you see the picture of failure. But here he shows the picture and the model of someone doing it right. And for centuries, I told you this in Christmas time, centuries people have said in the Old Testament, who was this servant referring to? We know ultimately who it refers to, but it meant something back then. In chapter 49, the servant is called Israel herself. But here's the strange thing. If Israel is the servant, how come the next verse it says the servant's going to save Israel? So let's think about this for a moment. Somehow the servant is fully identified with Israel and yet different enough from Israel that he can save her. Or you might say it this way. The servant somehow is so fully identified as a human being and yet different from just a normal human being so that he can save that human being. Who does that sound like? 
So yeah, initially it was maybe talking about Isaiah some and some leaders back then or purified Israel herself. But we know, especially on this day, we read these words because this is a picture of the master we worship. And he showed us what it looked like to be a true servant of God. So just for a moment, I just want to take you through a couple of the words of this passage. But, but here, worship through it. Think, just say, this week... Don't just rush. Don't go buy the dress and, 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 and eat the chocolate and just do that. Just for a moment, marvel at the master that we worship. We don't give folks the day off on Friday to just have a nice day off. Like, it's Good Friday. We marvel at the master who on this day, 2,000 years ago, gave his life for us. So here's the painting that God gives us. Here's the song he sings. Verse 4, I love it. My favorite words. What is, what is Jesus, he said? He says... The Father God has given me the tongue of a teacher so I know how to sustain the weary with a word. What a beautiful line. He's given me the tongue of a teacher so I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. Every teacher ever since has prayed this. I came across this years ago. I pray this on my knees before I come in this room every week. Can you do that, God? Not for me. Let the teacher, the true teacher, speak. But Jesus did it masterfully. Have you ever thought about how, has he done that for you? Do you need him to do that for you? Just give me a life-giving word because I'm weary of this unfinished business of this world so much. I think of Mark chapter 1 every time I hear these words. I think I preached it in one of the first sermons I ever preached. You know, we, we have a bunch of Jesus stories and then there's your Jesus story. You know what I'm talking about? It's personal to you. Mark chapter 1 is my Jesus story. Because this... Man comes up to Jesus with his flesh rotting off with leprosy. And he said to Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me healthy and you can make me clean. Do you remember what the words of the teacher were? Do you remember what he said? I am willing. Do you remember not just what he said? Do you remember what he did? Have you heard this story before? If you haven't, it's glorious. Go look at it, Mark chapter 1. This man who hadn't been touched in weeks, months, maybe years, skin rotting on his flesh. Jesus didn't wait to heal him. He reached out and did what, church? He touched him and he said, I am willing. That is the tongue of a teacher who sustains the weary with a word. Do you need him? Marvel at the master. That's what a servant of God looks like. But here's so beautiful. He is so powerful. He can spellbind the, the whole crowd in one moment with those powerful words. But you know what the next thing it says? Get the picture in your mind. It's poetry. It's a song. Morning, my morning, Jesus says. The Father wakens my ear to listen as the disciple, it's a literal translation, being taught. What? The teacher models for us every morning. He woke up saying, Father, would you whisper to me what we're doing today? You know, Paul said this in, in Philippians. Yes, he is the very nature of God, but he emptied himself and he chose to be just as dependent on the Holy Spirit of God to do his work and his life as you and I are. He just did it perfectly. Can you picture this? Before he was the teacher, he was the disciple and the student. And every morning he said, God, what are we going to do today? Who are we going to heal today? Where are we going to go today? Isn't that a beautiful picture of our servant God? Haven't you longed your whole life for the leader, the most powerful person in your life, to be someone who listens first? Is that who you need this week? Is that what you need to see of Jesus? And of course, verse 6 is the reason we read that passage every year this year, at this time, this week, this holy week leading into it. What does he say? 
I gave my back to those who would beat me. I gave my back to those who would beat me. And he said, I gave my cheek to those who would pull out my beard. What a weird statement. Unless you know something about the ancient Near East, maybe you've heard some of these stories in the Old Testament. One of the ways that they shamed people back then, the men, is they wouldn't just beat them in battle. They would then shame them after, and they would shave their beards, and it was a way of, of shaming them and mocking them. So we have stories in the Old Testament. They left for a while and didn't come back to their beards group. What is he saying? I voluntarily chose to be shamed for your sake. I've said this before, but it's so powerful. If you look at the New Testament, the New Testament does not focus in the crucifixion on the physical pain. It focuses on the mocking and the insults and the shame. So hear me, this is so important. Jesus didn't just die for your sins. He died for your shame. So whatever it is in your heart that makes you think, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy enough, I wish nobody would know this, you can bring that to him because he voluntarily took your shame on that cross on Friday. Is that what you need to see and hear this week? The last image in this glorious song, though, is he went through all of that, but he did it powerfully. He said, my God vindicates me. My God did not allow me to stay in shame. My God helps me. My God is victorious. I'm going to do it because I trust in him. Hebrews tells us that he voluntarily submitted to the one who would save him from death. Jesus, the son, did not raise himself from the dead. The father did. He gave his life to him and allowed the father to raise, resurrect him to life. Is that what you need to hear? That God is willing to go that far and trust that much in our God. Isn't this beautiful? Jesus didn't just substitute for your sin. Do you see this? He substituted for your obedience and your faithfulness. He got it right. And we get to step into that. Here's the wonderful offer this week. Are you going to trust that? Are you going to just look at him? I'm telling you, sometime this week, don't just buy chocolate. Marvel at him. Wonder at the master who got it right. There's a great poem about this. There's no way I'll be able to pronounce this guy's name right. Cislaw Milos, I think is what it is. But he writes this poem because he's crying out. He longs to trust in God, but he says, I need something. I need something that I can see and I need something visible. I need something human, he says. It's a beautiful poem, the whole poem. Let me just give you one line. Let this be our prayer this week. Come, Holy Spirit, and call one man anywhere on earth and allow me, when I look at him, to marvel at you. What a great prayer. Come, Holy Spirit, and set before me one man that when I look at him, I can marvel at you. And God said, I've given you that man. I've given him to you. He's my servant. Marvel at him. Look at him. Wonder at him. Because when you see him, you will marvel at me. Your whole life will change when you marvel at the master. Quickly, the last two lines of this passage invite us to realize real life transformation always begins with a choice. There is no change there's no transformation. There's no growth from those flat-on-the-ground moments to victorious life without some significant choice we make. And the last line in verse, in verse 10, it tells us the question that is the question for Holy Week. And it might be the question you need to answer for the first time. It might be for the thousandth time. But the invitation this week is to answer it again. What does it say? 
Verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of His servant? Who among you stands in awe of God and submits to the voice of His servant? Are you willing to do that this week? Because he goes on to say the problem is some of you are going to, listen to the beautiful poetry here, some of you will choose to warm yourself by your own fire. Try to do it on your own. And I promise you what he says there, God doesn't have to throw you in the fire. You're going to end up falling down, flat on your face, and it will be torment. We were created and wired to connect with God. Are you going to choose to listen to his servant or not. That's the invitation. Make a choice. And here's what's so beautiful about this passage. Jesus doesn't just offer you to follow him. He shows you what it looks like to make a choice. Did you catch this language? That's why I titled it the way I did. I love this. Verse 7. It said, the servant, Jesus speaking in the fullness of this, I have set my face like flint. I've set my face with the resolve of flint to go into God's purpose. Even though everybody's attacking me, And even though everybody's shaming me, I set my face like flint. Ezekiel chapter 3, God uses this image. And he says, I'm going to make your, how funny is this? Parents, you get this. Your forehead is hard as stone. (laughs) But he's saying it in a good way. He said, the people of God are rebellious and they're hard-headed. But he said, I'm going to make my prophet even stronger. I'm going to make your head like stone and I'm going to make your face like flint. And you don't have to be afraid. Jesus set his face like flint. And then when the Holy Spirit was inspiring Luke to tell the gospel story of Jesus, one of the most important sections in all of the Bible is 11 chapters from chapter 9 to chapter 19 of the book of Luke. They call it the journey to Jerusalem, the travel narrative. Do you know how it starts? Chapter 9, verse 51, look it up sometime, underline it, star it. Before Jesus headed for the events that we celebrate this week, it says in Luke 9, 51, Jesus resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus had a choice. He was doing ministry. He was walking around. He was doing all this stuff. And then the Holy Spirit tapped him and said, Son, now is the time. And Jesus set his face like granite to go into his death for you and for me. That's what a choice looks like. He did it for us. And I invite you, maybe it's for the first time. Did you know for centuries people have chosen the days and weeks leading up to Easter to be the time that they prepare for their baptism? And I don't shy away from saying you are invited to pray this incredible prayer with your whole body. We say all the time, the words of Peter quoting Joel in Acts chapter 2, everybody who calls on the name of the Lord is saved. Praise God. Call on the name. Pray to him. Pray with your heart. Pray with your mind and pray with your body. And baptism is a prayer of calling on the name of the Lord saying, I need you. This is a great time to do that. Or if you did that a long, long time ago, this is a week to say, I'm choosing you all over again because I believe you are leading me to life. Let me tell you, he's worth it. And I just think about what we've gone. Kelly and I were talking about this the other day. We think about these great men of faith that have gone before us, Jesse Buffington and J.D. McCready, and I believe that they stood here today, wouldn't they, Kelly? They would say, he's worth it. And years ago, we might not have done it perfectly, but they would have said, we set our face like flint to follow this man, Jesus, and we don't regret it. And you better believe they don't regret it now. Can we make that choice again this week or for the first time? I end with this. I had the opportunity to meet a new friend 
months ago, it was back in January, a good friend of mine, a client in my little consulting business that I do from time to time, invited me to come up and do a birthday party for some of his best friends and to do a consult with them. And so I got to spend the whole weekend with them and met several different people. One of them we'll call Jeff. It's, Jeff, it's not Jeff's name. We'll call him Jeff. He's a deacon in his church. He's a great leader, someone who's gone through difficulty and pain and, and come out the other side. He's just powerfully leading. But I was thinking about him a lot this week for a lot of different reasons. One of them was, I remember a couple weeks ago, we ended the book of Ephesians with this image of the armor of God, and I gave you a contemporary version of that. You remember the contemporary version of the armor of God? It was SWAT gear. My friend Jeff is a member of a SWAT team, now listen carefully to me when I say this. Jeff is the leader of the Nashville Metro SWAT team. Anybody have a sense of the significance of that and the seriousness of that this week? So my buddy, my mutual buddy of Jeff and I were talking this week, and he said I was there in the room with Jeff, and he got the call. Get in the car. And go down to a building in downtown Nashville. Don't worry, I'm not going to talk a lot of the details, but you know. He walked into an environment where when he stepped in that door, he was taking his life into his hands to go into that place. Now, he led that team. He was not one of the two people who ended that situation. We'll put it that way. But he led that team, and he prepared for that moment. And I was just thinking when I texted him this week, just for prayers and thanking him. It was a tragedy that happened earlier this week, but I'm telling you, there are dozens and dozens of children and teachers who are alive because that man walked into the room in that building and said, I'm willing to put my life on the line. I think about Derek who's out there right now, and I thank God for him. He serves us. He was training this week, he said, for that very kind of situation. He trains so that we will be safe. I thank God for people like that. Hear me, I celebrate the Derek's of the world, my friend Jeff of the world, but listen to me. Please don't just rush past it. Don't just say, yeah, we talk about it every week. Listen, he wasn't getting out of the room that he chose to go into 2,000 years ago on Friday. When he walked into the courtroom of Pilate, he wasn't going to walk out alive. And he did it so that we would. And yes, he didn't stay dead. But he gave every ounce of his life because he wanted to show us a picture of the master's love for you. And we are invited just this week. Please, I beg you, take some time this week to just marvel at the one who gave his life so that you could live in every way God designed you to. And when you do, and you recognize he didn't stay dead, then you choose now again to put your hands into the hands of the one who will lead you into his life. Father God, that's, that's what we ask you. This week of all weeks, we ask it all the time, every day. But this week, can we just say again from the depths of our souls, thank you, Jesus for giving every ounce of your life and your being for the brokenness in my heart and my life and the pain and the brokenness of this world. We trust you. We follow you. We love you. We say it to you. We need you. And we need your help. So please let us see you in some way this week and as an entire church with all of our being. By the power of your spirit, let us follow you for the glory of your name. In his name we pray. Amen.